Jesus' name, amen. Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 14, we read, Now King Herod heard of him, for his name had become well known. And he said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. Others said, it is Elijah. And others said, it is the prophet or like one of the prophets. But when Herod heard, he said, this is John whom I beheaded. He has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. Because John had said to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Therefore, Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. Then an opportune day came. When Herod on his birthday gave a feast for his nobles, the high officers and the chief men of Galilee. And when Herodias' daughter herself came in and danced and pleased Herod and those who sat with him, the king said to the girl, ask me whatever you want and I'll give it to you. He also swore to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you. Up to half of my kingdom. So she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. Yet because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately, the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought. And he went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took away his corpse and laid it in a tomb. In the sixth chapter of Mark, it's filled with opportunities. For the disciples, it included the opportunity to know the servant in verses 1 through 6, and then to share the servant's word in verses 7 through 13. Now comes another opportunity, at least for one man, Herod. It is his opportunity to repent of his sin in verses 14 through 29. Herod Antipas was called the Tetrarch of the Galilee in Perea, but he preferred the title that his father had, King. 
Now, Jesus, at this point, has experienced a measure of success as a country preacher. Knowledge of his miracles and ministry have swept like brush fire throughout the region of Galilee. Jesus has been rejected for a second time in his hometown of Nazareth. And he's just sent out the disciples on a preaching, teaching, healing, deliverance, revival circuit meeting. And he is met with great success and response and news of the servant's ministry has reached the ears of a man who's deeply troubled in his spirit and in his conscience. That man is Herod Antipas. His father, Herod the Great, left him and his two brothers with the ruling responsibilities under the watchful eye of the Roman overlords. Herod the Great, as you might recall, was the wicked king who discovering that a future king might be born in Bethlehem, ordered all of the children from two years and under to be executed. He was a man who was quite literally mad. He executed one of his wives. He executed two of his children. As a matter of fact, the one child, Aristobulus, who he wanted to be the future king, he had killed. And so he named this man. Herod Antipas, to be the future king. But at the last moment, right before he died, he changed his will and he ordered the kingdom split between the three brothers, including Herod Philip, who was in charge of what was called Galanitis or the southern part of Syria and what you and I would call the Golan Heights. And so... In this passage of scripture, we read of Herod Antipas' troubled conscience as he remembers the horrible thing that he did to Messiah's herald, John the Baptist. Remember, the servant Jesus was preceded in his ministry by John the Baptist. As a matter of fact, you'll remember in Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, and Luke chapter 7, verse 28, Jesus said, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. And if that was the only thing that we knew about John the Baptist, it, it should cause us to pay close attention. You'll remember that John the Baptist, for a brief moment, served as the conscience of the nation. You'll remember his message. Repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. He preached relentlessly to the people, condemning sin, urging righteous among the common as well as the not so common. And you'll remember he said that his was a voice as one crying in the wilderness to prepare the way to make way for the Savior. For the Messiah and John's compelling message, along with his absolute commitment to the truth, attracted the well-known and the not-so-well-known, including the king, Herod Antipas, Tetrarch of the Galilee and Perea. And because John was a man who told the truth and because John was a man who exposed sin, during the course of the conversation, he exposed the sin of Herod. He had an unlawful marriage. He literally had married his niece. You have to understand that Herodias was not only 
the wife of his half-brother Philip, but the daughter of his other half-brother Aristobulus. And yeah, this is a Jerry Springer moment. And so rather than deal with the public humiliation of one of his subjects concerning his wicked behavior, rather than deal with the public humiliation, the haranguing he had John the Baptist thrown into his own private dungeon in his own private fortress to silence the scathing rebukes of the camel-clad prophet. And John's boldness. And John's goodness. And John's truthfulness. Put Herod on a spiritual roller coaster ride. There was a strange attraction to the truth, yet a horror of what the truth exposed his own sinful circumstances. And so, for political reasons, he arrested him. For personal reasons, his vicious, evil wife, Herodias, would have the Baptist killed. She would silence the voice crying in the wilderness, but not the tortured conscience. Of her would-be husband who would be king. She silenced the servant's herald. But in the process set in motion. Something far worse. The death. Of his conscience. But before that happens. Look at his conscience stabbed. Look at verse 14. Now King Herod. This is Antipas. Heard of him for his name had become well known. The name of Jesus. And he said John the Baptist is risen from the dead. And therefore these powers are at work in him. I know it sounds like a creepy kind of a thing right before Halloween. Does he think he's a zombie come back from the dead? Others said it's Elijah. And others said it's the prophet or like one of the prophets. But when Herod heard, he said, "Mm, this is John, whom I beheaded. He has been raised from the dead. Does he really believe that? Does he really believe that somehow the spirit of John the Baptist has entered the spirit of Jesus and has awakened him? I don't think so. I don't think that this is just bad theology talking. This is a guilty conscience. As a matter of fact, H.L. Mencken, who himself was not a Christian by any stretch of the imagination, he supported Germany in World War II. He hated Christ and Christianity. He was a frank admirer of Nietzsche. He wrote, quote, conscience is the inner voice that warns us that someone might be looking. And a guilty conscience... Maybe a guilty conscience, but guilty conscience can have a very good memory. And Herod's problem is really the problem that all human beings face concerning Jesus. Who is he really? In Herod's case, his conscience reminded him of the evil deed. But again, rather than repent, rather than face the music, rather than turn from his sin, he believes that John has somehow come back from the grave to condemn him and accuse him and destroy him. The haunting memory of the holy man caused memories to be stirred up inside of him on that terrible day that John died. Many people who are unable to accept the claim of Jesus to be God's unique son, they may take time to consider who he is, but they typically will come up with an explanation that is not the explanation in the Bible. 
They want to explain his power and they want to explain his authority. And some will make supernatural allegations. I've heard people claim that Jesus is an alien hybrid from another planet or he's the illegitimate offspring of a space traveler and the human Mary. Some say he's the incarnation of Krishna. The LDS church says he's the spirit brother of Lucifer. The Jehovah's Witnesses say he's the Archangel Michael. Other people say he's a good moral teacher, a good man, maybe even the best man who ever lived. In the Far East, they think he might be an ascended master come to lead and guide humanity to a deeper level of consciousness. In our text, the rumors are flying over the origin and the identity of Jesus. Those who are familiar with the Old Testament thought, well, in verse 15, it's Elijah. And clearly in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of that great and dreadful day of the Lord. He's coming. I wonder if this is him. Others believe that he was a teaching prophet in the tradition of Moses or Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel. Haven't you ever wondered? Why so many people have so many strange ideas and thoughts and opinions about Jesus. What is it about this man that stirs such controversy? I believe that at least one reason, and I know there are many more reasons, but at least one reason is that if he is who he says he is, If he is God in the flesh, if he is the person who's been sent by the Father, incarnated, if you will, born of a virgin, living the perfect life that we could never live. If he is, in fact, one person with two natures, completely God and completely man, if he is what the New Testament says he is, the one who confronts sin. And forgives sin and reconciles us to the Father. Then it prompts another question. Well, what do I need to do to have a right relationship with this person? And the answer, of course, is to turn from your sin and to repent of your sin and to remind you that God really loves you and that he, that he sent Jesus to die for you, that his real death accomplishes what no other death could accomplish, that is forgiveness of sin and reconciliation with the Father. In other words, it's one thing to be concerned about your sin, and it's another thing to not have an answer to that problem. But if he can be something less, if he can be something less, if he can be something less than the Savior, then you get to live your life apart from God, estranged from God, content with you being the king of your own life. Whatever people think, however misguided, however sincere, however misinformed, it doesn't change the truth about who he is. You know, the Bible says we all have a conscience. You know, God made you. He made you a physical person with an internal makeup. You have the ability to choose and choose otherwise. You have a conscience and inside of your conscience in Romans chapter 2 verse 15, it says that it will either accuse you or excuse you. 
The human conscience is a moral organ, an inner voice that compels us to do what's right. And you've heard me say this. It's that something inside of you. It's that voice that says, do what's right. Do the right thing. Do what's right. But it doesn't necessarily know what's right. It has to be informed. And we inform our conscience either through revelation or through the Bible or through other people. We speak to the conscience. Herod neither listened to John or his conscience because instead he embraced the decision to be manipulated by the voice of his wife, demanding that John's voice be silenced. And so in verse 17, look what it says. For Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John, that is, John the Baptist, and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother's, Philip's wife, for he had married her. And by the way, it's really interesting that nowhere in the text will it call Herod Antipas the lawful husband of this particular woman. In verse 19, it's in verse 18, for John, that is the Baptist, had said to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Therefore, Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and a holy man, and he protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things and, and heard him gladly. At first, Herod's conscience is stabbed as he realizes and remembers that he's done something wrong. But then his conscience is stirred. But he cannot have John making wild accusations, he must have thought. I can't have him making accusations against me and my wife, even if they're true. At her request, she sends for John and has him imprisoned at their fortress. This fortress is called Machiris, and it's on the east side of the Dead Sea. And it goes a little ways into uh, another kingdom, the kingdom of Nabatea. And it's near a wilderness and near yet another fortress called Masada or Masada. And Herod, the king, his father, built a series of escape fortresses in case the whole world came crashing down. Herod Antipas is the Tetrarch, and the word Tetrarch means the ruler of one-fourth of the land. And like I said, when his father died, he splits it between the brothers. One of the brothers loses Judea, and so they set a procurator over Judea, and so the rest of the kingdom is split between the three brothers, and the kingdom stretches just north of Arabia to slightly south of what's Lebanon. Like I said, he's the son of Herod the Great, who died in 4 B.C. His brother Philip and him were wards of the court. In other words, in order to ensure safety and security, the Herod children were raised in the court of Rome. And in the court of Rome, Herod Antipas, Herod Agrippa, and Herod Philip formed friendships with a man who's going to be the future king, Augustus. And then Augustus has a future king named Caligula, and they're boyhood friends with Caligula, and they grow up in a Roman world, in a Roman court, with Roman passions and Roman lusts. And so when his father does die, Herod Antipas goes back, he marches to his childhood friend, and pleads with Augustus to make him king of the Jews. But... Augustus honors 
the will of his father and divides the kingdom. And Herod Antipas meets Herodias. Herodias is his niece, but also is married to his half-brother. She's an unprincipled woman who has ambitions of being the wife of a tetrarch. There are two problems, however. She's married to Antipas, or she's married to Philip, the brother, and then Philip, excuse me, Antipas is already married to the daughter, the fourth daughter of King Aretas the fourth of Arabia, named Phosilaeus. And in other words, when the marriage of Phosilaeus to King Antipas was made, it was to ensure the Nabataean border. But when Herod Antipas falls in love with Herodias, he's willing to do whatever it takes to have her in his life. So he will divorce his wife, even if it means war. And it will mean war. Later on, Aretas, completely, completely, completely offended, will mount a war of retribution, but Antipas doesn't care. And Herodias, like her husband, is a fox. By the way, that's, this is the Herod Antipas that Jesus refers to as a fox. And in the Hebrew culture, a fox is an unclean animal. Aretas was a friend of Rome, and, and he's supposed to be a friend of Rome. They're supposed to keep the Parthians at bay. If Herod Antipas divorces his wife, it's going to offend it. It's all, it's so Jerry Springer. What do we do? And in the midst of all of this, John the Baptist comes with the whole sordid thing, and he, he, he goes on Fox News, and he tells the whole world, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. No kidding. Let me ask you a question. Do you think some people are offended when their sins are exposed? Do you think that people are deeply, profoundly, and fundamentally embarrassed? Herodias is no exception. But often when our sins are exposed, it reveals something way worse inside of us. Some awful, terrible, wicked thing inside of us. And in the case of Herodias, she's willing to murder the Baptist if that will make him keep his mouth shut. She's willing to silence the voice of the critic. And it would seem that something awful had happened to her own conscience. Her conscience had long since stopped speaking, seared by her own lust for power and position and ambition. She is a woman who has no right or no power to silence John. So she'll do whatever it takes she will take advantage of any opportunity. Look again at verse 20. For Herod feared John. There's something about the goodness and the decency and the righteousness and the truth that's very attractive. And so John and Herod developed this odd relationship. Herod would go on the first century version of, of Christian TV and he'd flip the channels till he sees this man with long hair and a beard clad in a camel's suit saying, repent and turn from your sin. And he'd go, look at this guy. Isn't he amazing? Isn't this crazy? Look at the way he looks and look at what he's saying. Isn't this entertaining? 
There's something about the goodness and the decency and the righteousness and the truth that's so interesting. But then there's something terrifying when he talks about repenting of sin and and believing the Messiah. Herod knows that his sin has been exposed, but he can't bring himself to actually take the advice of the Baptist. And sometimes that's exactly what happens at a church. You walk into the door and the preacher begins to preach. And then you say, now you're meddling, Mr. Preacher. You're uncovering things and exposing things that I would rather be left alone And so Herodias says, who is this guy to tell us who to live? Who is this guy to tell us that says we can't have what we want? Family values. Why don't you take care of your own family? And evil is frightened by goodness. And impurity is fascinated by purity. And in that in-between world, Herod Antipas protects John. You know what it would be like? It would be like a mob boss paying off the church because that's where his wife and kids go. And the mob boss wants the family to still have good morals. Reminds me of the story of Guido and Frank. Guido was a mob boss. He was in charge of prostitution, drugs, and every illegal activity that you can imagine. And Guido drops dead. And Frank goes to the priest and says, look, I'll give you $100,000 if you say my brother was a saint. And the priest goes, well, now let's do the math here a little bit. Your brother's a drug lord. Your brother's in charge of prostitution. Your brother's... The biggest criminal that I know. Look, I'll give you $100,000 if you say he's a saint. So the priest is thinking it through. Because they really need the money. They could use an extra wing at the church. And things are going really bad at the church. And so at the funeral, he goes, Guido, as you might imagine, was a drug lord and a kingpin in charge of gambling and every sort of vice imaginable. But compared to his brother, Frank, he was a saint. Herodias is not that ambivalent. She's not torn between two worlds. She knows exactly what she wants. She wants the Baptist dead. There's a burning hatred and a deep animosity that has already been manifested in the religious leaders with that same animosity and that same hatred. This is the kind of animosity and hatred that the religious leaders have towards Jesus, and they want him dead as well. The solution that Herodias gives, kill the voice that's troubling you. If you can't live with your conscience, then kill it. Make the voice go away. Take the pill. Take the drink. Do whatever it takes to make the voice stop saying, do what's right. Cowardice asks the question, is it safe? Expedience asks the question, is it political? 
Vanity asks, is it popular? But conscience continues to ask the question, is this the right thing to do? And in verse 21, it says that an opportune day came when Herod on his birthday gave a feast for his nobles and high officers and the chief men of Galilee. And when Herodias' daughter herself came in and danced and pleased Herod and those who sat with him, the king said to the girl, ask me whatever you want and I'll give it to you. Notice how quickly Herod's voice is completely seared and hardened. By the way, sin, if given an opportunity, will always manifest itself. And Herod throws a birthday bash. The tipsy tetrarch winds up biting off more than he can chew. In his palace fortress, he invites the leading officials, all the VIPs, the very Italian people from Rome. He even invites all of his friends from Facebook. The dignitaries from Rome almost certainly were there. And below, in Herod's dungeon, was the imprisoned conscience languishing. Maybe just for a moment, a moment of despair, there was John. He has a little moment of doubt. Is my ministry complete? What is left for me to do? Will I remain in this prison? Will I die in this prison? In Matthew 11... Matthew records, now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples that he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, are you the coming one? Or are we looking for another? Jesus answered and said to them, go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed, blessed is he who is not offended because of me. And in the quietness of that dark, dirty, empty place, the Baptist said, I'm not offended. I love the truth. I love the Lord. I'm not offended by the truth. Herod's wife is offended by the truth. Are you offended by the truth? Does Jesus offend you? What offends you more, the truth about Jesus or the truth about yourself? The truth that nobody else knows about. That dark, empty, forbidden place inside of your heart. Because you are either saved and forgiven because you've placed your confidence because you're not offended by the truth. Or you're holding out. Oh, how happy is he who is not offended because of me, Jesus said. Hang in there, John. I'm coming to get you. You mean deliver me from prison? You mean deliver me from death? No, I mean the prison of sin and the sting of death. I'm going to raise you from the dead. 
Because the truth is we're all going to die and we're going to all die at exactly the moment that God is done with us. And Jesus is going to bring him back to life and upstairs in the luxury and the warmth and the light and the food and the music and the burning hatred of Herodias. She finds an opportunity to extinguish the offense. Kill him. Kill the Baptist. I want him dead. I want his head. I want to stare into his lifeless eyes. And I want to spit into his dead face that mocked me and accused me and dared offend me. I'm not going to let a preacher tell me what to do. Who does he think he is? Hell hath no fury like the dancing daughter's mom. And Herod makes a hasty vow. He's sworn a foolish oath and he's made a foolish promise. By the way, would to God she would have taken him up. I'll give you everything up to half of my kingdom. Because guess what? If he could have only lost half his kingdom that day, then he might have been able to retain his soul. But in the end, he will lose both. His vow was sinful. And the request was even worse. By the way, it should cause us at this point to ask a very important question. Is it wrong? Is it wrong? Is it wrong to break a promise? You know, after I got saved, I shared Christ with my family, with my brother, with my sister, with my mom, with my friends. And my sister was dating this guy and They both made a pact. They made a covenant with each other. They said, look, no matter what, no matter what, no matter what, let's not become Christians because that would be suicide. That would be stupid. Whatever. Just promise me now that you'll stop listening to Gino. You'll you'll forget what he's saying. This whole thing about Jesus and how he loves you and how he's willing to forgive you. Just make a promise right now to me that you'll never become a Christian. And they swore a pact to each other that they would never become Christians. One week later, my sister was overwhelmed with guilt and conviction, and she prayed to receive Christ as her Savior. Three months later, the other young fellow heard Billy Graham preaching. And he says, you too, if you're you're watching at home, you can come to Christ yourself. He forgot all about the, the vow, and he received Christ as his Savior. That man, by the way, was Skip Heitzig, who became the pastor of Calvary in Albuquerque, which became the fastest-growing church in America in the mid-1980s. Both of them broke their vow. Herod made a foolish boast. And the king was exceedingly sorry, yet because of the oaths and because of those who had sat with him, he didn't want to refuse her. I made a promise. You don't want me to go back on my word. Yeah, I I insist that you go back on your word, particularly if your word causes you to break the word of God. I made a promise, a promise to deny God, a promise to disobey God, a promise to remain in rebellion. You know, conscious is when you're aware of something and conscience is when you wish you weren't. They'll laugh at me. 
They'll make fun of me in the royal halls of Rome. I'll be the laughing stock of the empire. And he was sorry. He was very sorry. It says here in the scripture, he was exceedingly sorry. That means very sorry. But you know what? When you're sorry and somebody dies, that's not the kind of sorrow that the Bible's looking for. You see, godly repentance will lead not only to a change of mind and a change of heart, but a change of life. Judas was sorry that he betrayed Jesus and he threw the silver coins onto the temple mountain and then he went and he hung himself. Herod Antipas was sorry that he made the deal with his dancing daughter, but he couldn't refuse her. And he ordered the execution of the Baptist. And they removed his head. And they presented it, his wild hair and his long, strange beard, overflowing a platter of pure silver. He caves into the pressure. Well-meaning friends and family think they know what's best for you. But I need to caution you about something. Never, never, ever, never, ever listen to the advice from an unbeliever about right and wrong and truth and error and good and evil and heaven and hell. Because unbelievers do not have a clue about how to honor God. Thank you for that. Under pressure, the true stuff of character begins to shine through. Under pressure, Herod, the man who would be king, kills the king's messenger. Are you under pressure? Are your friends and family begging you, urging you to dishonor God and dishonor Christ? How will you respond when you're faced with hardship and loss and inconvenience and downright pain? How will you go forward in the face of disease and the threat of death? What will you do? How will you do it? A lady in Victorian England, when her husband was absent, lost her children to the deadly cholera epidemic and she laid them out with a mother's tenderness and she spread a sheet over their bodies and she waited for her husband to return and when she her husband came home she said a person lent me some jewels she told her husband now he wants them back whatever shall I do Return them by all means, said the husband. And then she led the way. And she removed the sheets and uncovered the forms of her children. Under pressure, what will you do? How will you respond? Look at the end of the passage. It says, when the disciples heard of it, they came and they took away his corpse and they laid it in a tomb. Matthew's gospel adds this very interesting statement. And they came 
to tell Jesus what happened. Under pressure, they buried John. And under pressure, they went and they told Jesus what happened. Is that what you do? When the pain seems overwhelming and the pressure great and the temptation beyond belief? You know, under most circumstances, this is where the story would end. But this isn't the last message we get on Herod Antipas. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 23, it says, Now when Herod, that's Antipas, this guy, saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see him, because he had heard many things about him, and he hoped to see some miracles done by him. Then he questioned him in many words, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes stood and vehemently accused him. Then Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him and arrayed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. And again, there's a special note at the end. It says, and that very day, Pilate and Herod became fast friends with each other, for previously they had been at enmity with one another. Herod Antipas. He wants to see Jesus. He wants to see how he might be amused by Jesus. There's no conscience here. Come and amuse me, Jesus. I'll go to church because it amuses me. I'll listen to the Bible study because it amuses me. There's no healthy respect. There's no fear. There's no spiritual conviction. Herod, Herod stands face to face with absolute goodness, with absolute truth, with absolute love. He looks into the face of Jesus and he mocks him. Do you understand? He looks into the face of Jesus and he sees nothing worth respecting. And you know what's worse? Jesus looks into Herod's face and he sees nothing. Nothing. Is it possible to ignore the promptings of a conscience, to deny your conscience, to bury the guilt, to ignore the guilt, to ignore the pounding and the prompting, even though it's desperately holding on for dear life? It's trying to stay alive, but for Herod, it's already dead. And Jesus has nothing to say to him. Because Herod stopped listening a long time ago. And the message is to believer and unbeliever alike. Beware, beware. Don't neglect your conscience. Don't ignore your conscience. Remember, accepting Jesus is the right thing to do. Don't ignore your conscience when it exposes your sin and then points you to the satisfying solution to the problem of your sin. Herod refused to listen to the servant of God. And the son of God had nothing to say to him. You know, the most dangerous time in your life isn't when you stop caring. It's when you stop caring. Listen to your conscience. 
In the book of Acts, Paul says, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. He said, I also do my best to maintain a blameless conscience before God and men. In 1 Corinthians 4, 4, he says, my conscience is clear. But that doesn't mean I'm innocent. And you may think your conscience is clear, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're innocent. Have you dealt with the problem of your sin? Have you experienced forgiveness in life? And by the way, don't make foolish promises you can't keep. Keep your answer simple and sincere. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Because remember that a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways and under pressure. Do you listen to the expectations and advice of the ungodly? Are you offended by Jesus? Are you offended by the truth? Don't compound your sin by refusing and ignoring the offer of salvation found only in Jesus. And by the way, if you've ever promised someone that you would rather continue in sin than honor God, then break your promise and make a new one to to Him. You know, when I was eight years old, Martin Luther King gave a speech. He challenged a generation. He said there comes a time when one must look, one must take a position that's neither safe nor political nor popular, but he must take it because his conscience tells him that it's right. And if your conscience is working, If your conscience is doing what it's supposed to do. Then it will tell you to do what's right. The right thing is to turn from your sin. And to embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father. I pray for each and every person within the sound of my voice. Lord, if there's any hint of a voice inside of their heart urging them, compelling them to do what's right, to do the right thing, to turn from sin and turn to the Savior, to embrace His life and His love and His forgiveness and His hope. Heavenly Father, if there's ever a time when a person needs to say, I've been running too long and I've been wandering too far. Lord, I've tried to make the voices stop. Lord, I pray that they would hear that muffled cry inside of their own soul. Lord, for the person who hasn't heard from Jesus in a very, very long time. Lord, I pray that you would extend that invitation to them to turn from their sin, to embrace the Savior, to know Him and love Him and to experience forgiveness and hope. To pray a simple prayer. Heavenly Father, I know that I'm a sinner and that I need a Savior and that my sins have separated me from you. 
And that in order for me to experience goodness and truth and wholesomeness and purity, I'm going to need to turn from my sin and I'm going to need to experience forgiveness that's only found in Jesus Christ the Lord. And so I commit my life to you now. In Jesus' name. Amen. And if you prayed that prayer, there's men and women who will be available to talk with you and pray with you after the service. Let's stand.